Welcome to Wisdom of Wanderlust, a podcast for travelers by travelers. I'm Michael Bennett, co-founder of ExplorerX. As a seasoned traveler, coach, and educator, I've dedicated my life to supporting people just like you and becoming the hero of their own story. And I'm Robin Goldblatt, a lifelong globetrotter, avid outdoors woman, and health nut, driven by my relentless curiosity and compassion for our world. Join us as we explore and discuss how to travel better and how to live a better, more fulfilling, and more mindful life. Hey everyone, welcome into Wisdom and Wanderlust. Our guest today is Dr. Court Whalen. Court is an expedition leader, a guide, a photographer, author, and conservationist whose mission is to inspire each and every one of us to do our part in protecting our planet and the amazing people, cultures, places, and wildlife that call it home. In this episode, we're going to be chatting ecotourism, photography, conservation, and how they all benefit each other. Court will share some really cool statistics regarding the striking economic benefits to a community dedicated to conservation. And he will also clue us into some really easy things that we all can do to be better stewards of our earth. Ready to go, Michael? Let's do this. Awesome. Well, it's good to have you back, man. I know we had a really nice conversation back in the summer and uh, we're back again. Court 2.0. (laughs) <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, to join you guys. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Man. Um, how, how have things been? What's, what's new? What's exciting? Oh gosh, so much new, so much exciting. You know, no, not really. I mean, you know, we're trying to do new stuff and, but yeah, it's, there's this pandemic thing going on. So it's a lot of just kind of stacking the deck and getting, getting ready for things and, sort of just trying to see through the crystal ball right now. I mean, that all being said, there's still a lot one can do. And, you know, as a photographer, I'm I'm going back through old photos and ha- having a lot of fun, actually. So I kind of, I guess I thought a little bit forward when I was taking my photos way back in the day and everything was taken in like the highest quality raw format, you know, and I didn't know what I was going to do mm-hmm. with them. And I edited them back in the day and now going through them again with like 10 more years of experience in my belt and new eyes and I think better eyes for colors and photography and of course new software. Like I might be able to get photos that I never even put in my, my sort of final album as like the favorite photo of the trip now. Right. So it's, it's actually really exciting in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's also a good way to kind of yeah, travel cool. virtually and look back on amazing memories and bring them back to life and, kind of there's probably a metaphor somewhere in there i don't know we can tease that out a hundred percent i'm curious for just i mean for the technical side of the photo editing can you were the photos taken in such a way the raw format as you said that you can actually edit them differently now than you would have been able to edit them differently then or does kind that make any sense or, or are they stuck in some old format that you can't do much with a little bit of that, but more of the former, more, more of it being like the raw file. It's just a bunch of data. And as the software gets better, be, uh, better, as the software gets better, it figures out how to like tease apart the various pixels and, and you get basically just as much editable power as you do from your latest photo you took on the camera mm. three generations later. So yeah, you, you can actually go back and I mean, now there's all sorts of things with the original sensor you can't change, you know, like the photo is taken, but in terms of, yeah, like I have new sliders in Photoshop that I can use that do different right. things to shadows, for instance. Sure. Um, so yeah, it's it's fun. We've been having these like 
virtual community member meetups lately. And we had one on Peru last night. And it gave me an opportunity to like go back through all my old journals and photos and just revisit that trip and kind of relive that trip. And that was so fun. (laughs) And like, I just, (laughs) yeah, yeah, if it weren't like, if it weren't for COVID and we were all like stuck at home and having to do these virtual kind of things, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be revisiting these as much. So it's been kind of fun that way. I hear you. And there's something, I mean, obviously I wish we weren't in this situation. I wish we are traveling, but there was, there was probably like five or six years there, maybe even more. Like, honestly, maybe ever since I started traveling that, I just, I traveled so much because it was, it was travel for pleasure, but travel for work really first and foremost, mm-hmm. it was either schooling, which is basically work or leading trips and doing the reconnaissance and all that. And like, I traveled so much that, you know, I would only have maybe like a week between trips or two weeks between trips often or a month. And I, I always thought it wasn't quite enough time to like metaphorically download my experiences and digest what I've seen and learned mm-hmm. and, and like, having this massive expanse, I mean, it's, it's absolutely the longest that I haven't traveled, um, in 20 years. Like it does provide that breathing room that I'm kind of going back and like, Oh yeah, I did learn that. Then mm-hmm. I did have this feeling that, Oh yeah, that was mm-hmm. that epiphany when I decided to change course and do such and such, or, or that was probably, that was the first trip where I got like a really good camera. Like, so there is something about stringing yeah. out the experiences. Right, right. This is an exaggerated form of that, but yeah, I guess it's seeing the silver lining right. a little bit. Yeah, no doubt. I have a philosophical question for you Ooh, okay. as it relates to photography. And we're how do you balance photography with being present in the moment um, while traveling? Are they are they one and the same? Is it does, does does the photography make you more present, or do you feel that some people, maybe yourself, maybe others, step out of the moment because they're so worried about the picture that they're going to take? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. And uh, I I hate being present. So it just gets me sucked. No, I'm kidding. No, uh, <laughs> no I, I think there's two sides of that coin. I think it I think photography on the surface makes you a little bit less present and you have to temper that. But I think in some ways it does make you more present because you are I guess the way to put it is like you're well, the obvious is you're getting, you know, closer to the animal with the focal length and the zoom. So you're kind of like seeing it in a slightly more appreciative sense. Um, but then there's also this idea that you're doing something behind the camera that's creating a lifetime memory. And you're kind of taking that moment a little bit more seriously because you're trying to preserve that moment and that scene mm-hmm. for you know eternity, basically. So you kind of have this, this time-space continuum thing going on in your head very latently. I mean, you're not like thinking about all this, but, <laughs> but like you are, you are actually trying to preserve that moment forever. And so I think it gets you mm-hmm. dialed in on a very, very deep level. It's not whimsical. It's not fleeting. You're seeing this thing mm-hmm. and capturing it in your mind and in the camera forever. So I think you can sort of twist it a little bit, but that all being said, I mean, I, I think if you were always behind the lens and never really, well, you need to put the camera down sometimes. Like it's it's necessary sure. to put the camera down. Like yeah, if if you've just seen the most amazing thing, you can take your shots, take even more photos than you would normally. But I think it's a lot of photographers have the same experience. Like some of their most amazing wildlife experiences they've ever had, they always photograph a little bit less than even the subpar ones <laughs> because they're like, you know what? I'm not even gonna try. This is this is. I'm saving this in my mental memory card. It reminds me of um, 
One of, so one of my favorite movies, um, I'm not sure if this is a guilty pleasure or not, but The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Sean Penn is, is the photographer, Sean O'Connell, and he's up on a mountain. He's photographing the snow leopard, and he's using this crazy lens to see it. And he just gets in there, and he's like, you know, I'm not even going to take this picture. Like, I'm going to be somebody present in this moment and watch this for what it's worth and for the beauty that it is and not worry about taking a picture of it. Yep. It, you know, uh, I guess I'm sort of embarrassed. I've not seen that movie, but the scene, uh, <laughs> scene makes me think I should totally see it. <laughs> but yeah. I definitely relate to the experience. Uh, definitely relate to the experience. So, Court, you're, you're an author. You are a conservationist, a photographer, as we've already talked about, philanthropist, guide, biologist, probably a, about a dozen other things that I'm not including. All of these threads, in a way, come back to travel. So where, where did your initial interest in traveling, where did your sense of wanderlust come from? Is it something you always had at an early age or something that was developed? Gosh, that list makes me think that I just can't make up my mind in life. Okay, no, but you're, you're right. It, it does all connect to travel. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I had a very clear aha moment in my life. Um, I think a lot of people do. This one, I mean, it's just there's just no doubt this is what got me on my track in life. And I was, uh, I was on sort of like an internship uh, with a small adventure travel company leading a group of high school kids to Belize. I, I wasn't a traveler growing up and, you know, I, I barely even belonged on the trip, but I was, I was studying entomology at the time. And so I was kind of like the token tropical biologist that would pick up bugs and beetles and stuff. So, yeah. So uh, it coincided with my spring break in college. I was like a sophomore or something, um, junior and it was such that my spring break was like the week or two before this trip. I'm like, oh, well, I got I got to take off the time for this trip. And I mean, of course, I totally need to go down there ahead of time. So I got some advice on where to go. This is like in the very early 2000s. So it was, it's weird to say that like we weren't as technologically advanced because we totally were at that point. But compared to today, it seems like a bit of the dark ages. And so like all my notes were just scratched on a piece of ledger paper and it was just... It was, I was, I felt very green. So the, what I'm trying to get out of here is I went on this trip. I just took the bull by the horns. I knew I was going down to Belize to be kind of part of a guided trip. So I didn't have to plan. I was just there to talk and interpret and talk about biology and get high school kids stoked on bugs, which is, you know, that's always fun. But it put me in the rainforest and I was totally in over my head. And I had this like 80 pound backpack that of course I flew with. And I had like boxes of Kraft mac and cheese and like cast iron pots because I was like, I don't know what's going to wait. I'm, I'm like going in the jungle. Um, and it was this big, you know, sometimes our most trying moments kind of get us to have the, the biggest awakenings about life, I guess. And so it was, mm -hmm. it was in that time on my own in the Coxcomb Basin Jaguar Reserve that I had this big aha moment that, you know, life is, life was hard for me. It's harder for the people there. We have this beautiful environment that is, you know, hearing stories of fellow travelers around me that is being sort of degraded and taken for granted. And then when I started this trip with these high schoolers, I sort of, I was a little bit of like, when I was in the Coxcomb Basin by myself, it was a little bit torn. Like, am I really having fun? I mean, this is kind of, this is sort of boring. Like there, I mean, not that I was ever like a TV or video game kid, but you know, I learned to just watch ants walking along a trail. Like that was my couple hours and I would like make some notes and I would take some photos very early on in photography. Uh, and then guiding these kids, I was like, you know, it, it just all clicked. And I realized this is definitely how I want to do my life. I want to protect it. 
I want to come back to these areas. And I think the most valuable way uh, is to teach people, but I think the most valuable way I can do it, my, you know, my, my power, my stance is to teach people in the field while traveling, while having the time of their lives, but teach them about really important things about how to conserve and save the stuff that they're seeing before them. And so that was my big aha moment. I mean, we could trace it back to years before where, you know, maybe went on some little vacations with my family or, you know, watch Discovery Channel. But like that, that one moment in Belize, being on my own, kind of struggling a bit, being immersed in immense beauty and then having the ability to see it through new eyes and teach people about a deeper level of appreciation that they wouldn't necessarily know and kind of convert them to this whole new wondrous world of, of nature and the conservation that we all kind of need to take part in. Okay. So at the time, so you were a sophomore in college, had you picked a major yet? And yeah. So I was studying entomology okay, um, so you're in- and okay. yeah, and I didn't, you know, I kind of picked it on a whim. I was always into nature as a kid. I mean, I would go to sort of the, the summer camps in the local state park that would, you know, little day camps and all that and walk on trails and learn how to, mm-hmm. I don't know, like look at fossils and leaves and, you know, kind of surface level stuff, but it gives you the appreciation. So I always had some sort of calling to nature, but really it was I, when I started college, I took philosophy and economics and oceanography and, you know, computer programming, like just not knowing what I wanted to do. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta figure out something. So it was the end of my first year and they make you pick something. You can't go into your second year undecided, Mm -hmm. undeclared. And I was taking a bugs one-on-one for my biology credit uh, on kind of a whim. And (laughs) I was like, what class have I liked most so far? (laughs) And, you know, learning about how termites communicate (laughs) and honeybees create honeycombs and talk with one another in their hives and, just sort of like the the immense world that insects inhabit and how they're sort of tied to everything. I was like, man, this is like a whole new thing. I, I really like this. I would like to learn more of this. And I don't think I'll ever stop learning about this because it's such a massively mm-hmm. complex and intricate, but different and fascinating part of biology and life that I'm like, yeah, let's just go for it. So I picked it, didn't know what I was going to do, but yeah, you know, from that point, uh, 11 years later, I would go on to finish a bachelor's and uh, then create this new major uh, for a master's and PhD in ecotourism entomology. And it was just this idea, kind of partly me, partly the department, partly my uh, major advisor and partly the department chair that's like, okay, like what, how could, how can we do this? This is very early on in this concept of ecotourism in the early 2000s. It was becoming a known term sort of, but uh, definitely not household. And yeah, bugs and tourism, let's just go for it. <laughs> so what is the, what did you do just after college? Was it, did you go It was a direct transition, into... yeah, yeah. So I, okay. so when I took this trip, I think it was actually the end of my junior year that this Belize epiphany happened. So I had one more year of like this basic entomology in undergrad. And at that time I, I immediately went back. Cause I mean, it was, it was a strong epiphany. I'm like, I, okay, I gotta do something. I gotta talk to someone. I've got to like, I gotta switch paths. Like that's what I want to do. And talking to the department chair, um, I was like, well, okay. So, you know, we don't have a grad program for ecotourism entomology, <laughs> but you know, if that's what you want to do, we can certainly look into it. And, you know, we have no coursework, we have no curriculum, but you know, part of higher education and part of grad school and certainly the PhD curriculum is to be inventive, start something that's never been done before. 
And so really it was, I was kind of just fast tracked in the PhD program and they're like, just create something new. That that's mm-hmm. going to be your thing. Of course you get, you know, a master's cool. along the way. If, if, um, <laughs> if you want, uh, you know, the studies and whatnot, you kind of have to do that. But yeah, it was just sort of creating something new right after undergrad, undergrad immediately into grad school. And then at that time it was suggested, I, I talked with one of the professors there that had a, a little bit of experience in ecotourism, ran um, his own kind of small scientific-based travel company doing, you know, two or three weeks in remote rainforest, jungle, not even lodges, like like research camps. And so I kind of came in and, and worked with him a little bit on that, but then also sort of expanded that idea to things like classical ecotourism in Galapagos Islands and bird watching and butterfly watching trips in Costa Rica and... I'm still doing some scientific expeditions. Uh, then, you know, heck, let's do a safari in Kenya. Let's go to Madagascar. Let's go to Papua New Guinea. We haven't been to Antarctica. Let's do that. And so it just sort of, at that point, this little kind of one, two-man show grew. And I was doing my education at the same time and getting this practical field experience. And ecotourism just kept on rolling and rolling and rolling. Even in the Great Recession period, which was like mid-grad school, mid development of this this travel program it was just growing boom 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 and i'm like man this thing has legs this is cool like i can i can keep on doing this and of course the more i guided the more i just fell in love with this idea of well travel's fun heck yeah (laughs) but Mm -hmm. uh you know just teaching people and something i still say to today is influencing the influencers of our world i think travelers tend to be a bit more extroverted, a bit more involved, a bit more active, a bit more outspoken, a bit more conscientious. And so if I can turn those people on to conservation via travel, I have this great disproportionate impact on, uh, you know, saving the world and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Yeah. So we, so we know you're into conservation, ecotourism, sustainable and regenerative travel. So there's a lot of terms here and we can get kind of jumbled and they can all kind of seem the same, but different. Like, can you take us through maybe the differences between those terms and maybe what's most appropriate? Yeah, no, I think it's easy to get lost in the definitions and there, there have been a lot that have sort of come and gone. Ultimately, I, I look at a lot of these the same. It's responsible travel to natural areas that conserves the environment and promotes the welfare of local people. There's obviously a lot of subjectivity and opinions on, you know, what is responsible travel. Um, there are documents, there are best practices, you can Google it. And there are folks like, you know, big standardizing organizations that do define that. And, and they have succinct definitions, but more often than not, they're just a list of sort of do this, not that. But really, I break it down to those those three main tenets of you know being responsible when you travel, which again, big big sidestep there of you know shopping local and staying local and hiring local. But really, I think the two biggest parts is that promoting the welfare of the environment and the local communities. And I think it's that last part of local communities that is so often not realized by people just getting into ecotourism. They think, oh yeah, cool, we're going to go see nature. We're going to take, you know, quad bikes or zip lines or just, you know, get out in nature. It's eco, you know, you slap eco on anything and it's um, Mm -hmm. it's green and it's nature-based. But I think really the first thing is this idea of promoting the welfare of local communities. They are the people that live around Mm -hmm. the national parks. They are the people that, Mm -hmm. um, they're the stakeholders. They're the people that benefit most. They're the people that uh, also protect the areas, you know? I mean, I think from a conservation standpoint, you know, putting on my conservation NGO hat, you can't just 
come in and put up fences and give people fines if they if they go into natural areas. You have to create a community, you have to create stakeholders, you have to create uh, vested interest, and you have to empower the people that live there. You can't just come in as a foreigner, no matter where in the world you're coming in from, and just say, this is how it has to happen. No, you, you, you have to empower those folks in the immediate area to do the protection, the conservation, to set up the hotels and the lodging and the meal services, the guiding, the conservation work, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's, I think that's a big bucket that kind of encapsulates a lot of this stuff. You can get into some of the more minute terms that define a little bit more about what you do on the conservation tour or on the responsible trip. And that's where you get into um, Mm -hmm. your transformative travel and in some cases, maybe some uh, regenerative travel. And, you know, I would probably say you guys might be more experts on some of those terms, but really it's, it's that kind of gets into the next level of, okay, great. You're taking this responsible trip. You're making sure that you're supporting local communities. You're kind of making these places better than you found them. And then what do you do? Do you work on your fitness? Do you work on your photo skills? Do you work on your mind body awareness? Like how, how do we actually use our time there to improve ourselves? Not just the places we're visiting. I think both are very important, but depending on who it is, you do it in different ways. I want to I want to go back to the the empowering local communities there because you know what you're saying makes sense, but I would imagine that a lot of that starts with an educational component, right? Yeah, absolutely. Why it makes sense for them for a variety of reasons, economically and otherwise, to protect and preserve what they've got. Education is huge. Um, you know, traditional education of just literacy and basic mathematics. People will run a business, even a small business, but then there's another level of education that's really the, the training aspect, like very specific kind of vocational training. And some of the best safari operators out there, you know, safari just as a general word for nature-based kind of vacations, have some of the best training programs because they also realize that you can't just come in the community and employ those people and then hire people from the U.S. or Europe to come run the lodges. Maybe for like the first year that happens to get the community on their feet. But the, the next step is really training the folks, educating them, getting them up and up so that they can take over the operation and then grow from there and become the leaders of not just that business, but also their community, vice versa. And the whole thing just gets elevated when, when you really take that seriously. I think back to some previous conversations we've had, you know, it's also about, you mentioned earlier in this conversation, seeing yourself, seeing the world through new eyes, you know, but it's getting, I would imagine it's about getting those local communities to see some of those resources that they have through new eyes, right? You've got some great stories. There's one about a shark, right? And how. Yeah, exactly. So that's the thing is that, you know, all these, all this stuff we go see around the world, whether it's a lion, whether it's a beautiful forest, you know, whatever, it has some sort of value. Um, unfortunately there's a value for its, and maybe not a lion, but let's just say any sort of wildlife value for its meat, value for its coat, value for its, you know, it's, it's entity, it's bones, all that sort of stuff. And, and, you know, people will hunt sometimes they'll, they'll eat it for bush meat, but, and the same thing with like forests and jungles, there's value for the, the minerals in the soil or mining underneath the soil. There's value in the trees. But what we like to think about is that there's greater value in these things being preserved. And it's it's more than just a thought. It's actually pretty legit scientific understanding at this point that wildlife and forests are worth about 
anywhere from five to 500 times more alive than dead. And so the idea is, you know, of course, we want to preserve these places. And part of conservation and preservation is keeping stuff as intact as, as possible. But then, you know, the other part of it is uh, really finding how we can get more money to these local communities. And really simply put, the way we found to do that is to keep this stuff alive and, and inject more of like a tourism infrastructure things. So the example you were talking about is a great one. It's a classic one. It's about shark diving in Palau. Palau is a small little island nation in the Pacific, and they do a lot of diving. They have a lot of sharks, and most people that go there that do diving are there to dive with the, the sharks that are found in the area. And I think they're like silky sharks. I'm not sure the exact species, but it's a, it's a friendly shark. We'll talk about the shark species. So the, the gist is, is that this great institute came in from Australia and they did this long study to analyze all the financials around shark diving tourism. How much money came to the guides, the lodges, the boat operators, the meals, the airports, the taxes, all this sort of stuff. And there's you know obviously a lot of money. Then they did an analysis of the shark population. How many sharks are in this area that actually you know, how many sharks are working? <laughs> what, what's the draw? <laughs> and they, and I'm going to simplify it greatly here, but it's this long 35 page peer reviewed paper that distills it down that each shark is worth about $1.9 million alive over the course of its lifetime, about $190,000 a year, wow. 10 year lifespan. And so that's a significant amount of money. And it's a very easy translatable fact that, you know, $1.9 million per shark, holy cow. So if we have zero sharks, we're losing out on all that. I mean, we're talking about like multi-million dollars per year. So if you think of the process that is endangering sharks right now, it's fishing, it's you know more, more or less hunting, it's shark finning predominantly, especially in the Pacific. And that's a pretty grotesque thing where fishermen will catch a shark, they'll take the fin off, they'll probably just show, throw the shark back overboard because there's not as much value and they're just really trying to hoard these fins. So anyway, it kills the shark. And if you can imagine the value of the shark being alive at $1.9 million, what do you think this shark fin is worth as just the fin, you know, on the black market for the shark fin soup? Well, I can tell you it's, it's like knock off many, many, many zeros. It's like $108 as just a fin. Mm -hmm. So keeping it alive intact, millions. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, as garbage in the ocean and, and as a bowl of someone's soup. So in other words, what the brilliance of this study has done is distill a very complicated equation of many entities involved in tourism, in conservation, in research, and distill it down into this number and this comparison that anybody can understand. Um, any local, any foreigner, um, any conservation organization, any government, any politician, but probably more importantly, the local folks, no matter how literate they are, no matter how much schooling they have, they know that if you take a shark out of the population, you're robbing their country of $1.9 million for $108 in return from some greedy person that wanted to just quickly fish and make a quick mm -hmm. buck. Yeah. So how how is this communicated? Like how are the local communities like rallied around this idea that saving the resources will pay off for them more in the long run? Yeah, it, take, it takes a lot of work. So, you know, one of the steps, of course, is getting the research out there, getting the numbers, figuring out what what true scientific fact is. This is proven, this is studied, this is this is like a fact. It's a known thing. And fortunately, there are like dozens of other studies out there now of, you know, gorilla watching tourism in East Africa, looking at somewhere between 18 and $34 million a year. The Alaskan Wildlife 
economy is about $2 billion a year. The value of a tiger in India is about $750,000 per tiger per year. So getting those numbers, I think, is a huge part of the equation. And it's really, really um, exciting for me because these numbers, these studies didn't exist when I was in school. And I, 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 mm-hmm. I think the Palau one did, and I always referenced that. But since then, all these other guys, all these other organizations have uh, taken that and expanded to other areas. So, so you get that. And then it's this very, you know, it can be complicated and it can be a very basic network of disseminating that information. It might mm-hmm. be part of an NGO's school curriculum to get in and teach elementary biology education. It might be part of town hall meetings. It might be part of directed government lobbying um, or directed government influence with policymakers. Be like, hey, listen, this is why you should pay more attention to the marine park that we're trying to save. Without the marine park, you have no control over these millions of dollars swimming around and entertaining divers. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't, so it's it's a multi-step process. And there's almost no bad ideas. There's like there's no bad idea for how to communicate that to the, the local communities and the public. It's just yeah. what's the biggest bang for your buck? Like how do you get in these areas and do it in the most efficient way? And some people say, well, start training the children, but that's not an immediate return. Get hit policymakers, that's great, but that takes more resources, and it's not as much necessarily of a long term play as as focusing on uh, elementary education. So you, you can see how there's just. It's a, it's a spectrum and there's all yeah. sorts of ideas. And that's why it's great to have multiple NGOs, multiple tourism operations that understand this. The more people that know it, the more the information is going to get out there. Right. And more examples of that just over the world compounds and start to see more and more of it. Um, so I think you've done a great job explaining how travel and conservation kind of go hand in hand. What do you do to ensure that there is minimum impact and maximum contribution to a place that you're visiting? And what can we do as travelers to ensure the same? Oh, how much time you got? That's that's a big <laughs> one. How but that but that is the point. Like like the, what you just said is like the point of conservation travel, the point of ecotourism, sustainable travel, responsible. It's like it's minimizing impact and maximizing return on conservation. That's it. Because I think a lot of people will look to tourism, they usually aren't travelers themselves, and they'll say, Well, gosh, should you be really going to this secluded rainforest or visiting this this community in the outskirts of XYZ? Should you really be getting on a plane and having carbon emissions? And it's like, yeah, these things are all impacts, but we do have impacts on anything we do in the world. Like anything you do, stimulus has response. You have an impact. Travel has a sizable impact, but this is where the return on that investment is, it can be huge. Remember like five to 500 times more valuable if you start injecting money in the local economy. Um, you know, tourism is the biggest industry in the world. This idea of sustainable or ecotourism or conservation travel is the fastest growing sector of that. For instance, tourism in Africa employs one out of 10 people that have jobs. That's, that's a pretty major significant thing. For every person employed, they have usually 14 people under them that depend on them for food, for shelter. Um, so you're talking about like over 100 million people in Africa depending on tourism. That's, that's, that's major, major, major stuff. So yeah, some practical advice of like, how do you take your impact and turn it into maximum reward? Well, the great thing is just simply by going to these places and leaving money in the local economy, you're checking a lot of those boxes. Like it's that ripple effect. It's that cascading effect of finances down the line. So just by, by doing it, you're doing well and you can, you can do it really well and you can do it kind of poorly, but there's still that, that cascade effect of finances. 
Um, the best way to do it is to leave the most money in local economies. Um, I think the best way to do that is by going with outfitters that are very responsible and making sure that they're working with local businesses, that they're staying in the smaller places that are owned by either community concessions or by people that are just right there in the country. And that's, that's a really, really huge part. Um, it's not always the easiest thing for the traveler or the, you know, the quote unquote consumer, not to sound too businessy, but like, it's not, it's not easy to really vet that out as a traveler. Um, because you know, how much time are you really going to spend? You're already planning this stuff. Or, or if you're working with a travel agent or a tour operator, you're doing so because you don't want to spend all that time vetting that stuff out. So my advice really is, is just start the conversation with whomever you're working with. I suggest asking the question, like, what's your stance on sustainability or stance on, on sustainable travel? Like, what are you, what are you guys doing for it? And I, I think the people that have a stance will be very proud to, to talk about it and to explain it. Um, I think that those that don't, you know, it's gonna be very obvious. The answer to that question is going to tell a huge amount about how are you working as the consumer, as the traveler, and how, how are you leaving the best positive impact? Um, what you can do on the trip itself also plays a huge part of it. And this goes for whether you're part of a scheduled kind of group tour. It goes for whether you're an independent traveler, but just being conscious of what money you do shell out on the trip is remaining in local hands. Like if, you know, if you're buying souvenirs and, and artifacts and crafts and all that, try to go for the co-op or at least ask, continue to ask questions, be inquisitive. You know, if you're going to a town, um, you know, oftentimes the people with the biggest bucks are having the, you know, the most marketing and most presence for souvenirs and they're gonna be right in your face you know the stores it's beautiful store beautiful storefront but if you just ask around be like hey where do you know if there's like a local co-op or something that i can maybe do instead um and maybe those big flashy ones are are the co-ops i'm not trying to put that down but nevertheless it's just asking questions being deliberate and the most powerful thing you can do i think to keep the engine running is to leave money in local economies yeah absolutely um so what what would you say are like some of the sustainable best practices that you use while you're traveling or when you're considering a trip or when you're on the trip that you also use in your day-to-day life back home? Yeah, that's, that's a great component of the question. So I, yeah, what I was just saying is more of like the big bird's eye view picture of sustainable tourism, but really there is a lot more you can do in terms of like your, like your actual impact, you know, Mm -hmm. carbon emissions, the waste you might create, et cetera, et cetera. And these, these are a lot more organic. They're, they, they're a lot more kind of clever and creative. Again, there's, there's just no wrong answers for what you can do. What you might hear from your local environmental group uh, is probably going to translate to your day-to-day life as well as translate to your travels. Some that I, I think about is my garbage, like maybe edit that part. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, what am I doing with like the plastic silverware? If I'm, if I'm given that, what am I doing in airports? Mm-hmm. If I need water, like all those sort of things. And it's this double-edged sword because a lot of places, you know, you need to be extra safe and, and you can't be washing your silverware and, and sinks, you know, in Bangladesh and think you're going to get away with it or just filling up your bottle, you know, in a hose behind, you know, the grocery store in India. Um, but evermore, there are more and more options to bring your refillable water bottle. And if you're staying in any sort of reputable hotel, you're going to be able to have water provided for you at a restaurant that is safe to drink. 
and you can fill up your water bottle. All it takes is a question. It might feel a little bit awkward because nobody else is doing it, but you got to be the trendsetter. You got to be the person mm-hmm. that uh, other people see. You got to be the person that the, the restaurant employees are like, whoa, that's the second one today. This is mm-hmm. becoming a trend. Maybe we should put a five-gallon cooler in the entrance of the hotel that people can just come fill up at. Now, you know, before I go too far down that road, we've, we've got an interesting global health situation on our hands right now. So how we deal with some of those communal factors going forward is going to be interesting, but it's, it's not difficult. It's not insurmountable. I mean, you, you just have a, a little bit more service in, involved, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you don't have that five gallon cooler just available for everyone. You, you do have an intermediary that sanitizes things. It's just another step. It just provides more awareness and it's more investment for the hotel, which is good. It's more investment into being responsible and sustainable more money is going to it. Maybe more people are thinking about it. It's creating that conservation culture, which is so, so darn important. One of the things I, I mean, I love so much of what you're saying here, Court. And I think one of the things that, that lands strongest with me, you know, we talk a lot about transformational travel or the fact that travel can inspire us to create change in, in our own lives. And it, it can feel one, like a one-way street, right? We go, we have an experience, we come home, and it's about us creating change in our lives and having a better experience of life. And while that's obviously very, very important, what you're talking about is sort of a, a much more scalable version of this where you're creating change and positive impact right, in these destinations that, that we're taking and sending people to, that, that, that our travelers are going to. And, and, and it's not only an exchange of information, but just really, as you said, empowering them economically and otherwise. Yeah, that's 100% true. I mean, I think that's... You just outlined the two parts of the equation. I think a lot of people think about the benefits of travel or the benefits of sustainable travel is, well, you're inspiring people, which is very, very important. You're, you're changing the traveler's lives so they come back home and tell others or change their habits, their behaviors, and create a conservation culture there. And that's, that's hugely important. Everything I've been talking about so far is talking about the transformation within the country, which might... You know, it's hard to measure which is greater, which is better. They're both super duper important, but I think that... Travel and seeing other parts of the world is so important for one's own worldview. There's a great quote that the most dangerous worldview is a worldview from someone who has not viewed the world. So Mm -hmm. that's, I think, quite important because, you know, if you're making decisions that impacts the world, which we're all doing on an increasingly more frequent basis, and you don't see how other people live and learn and laugh and play and deal with their lives and, and compare that and make it relative to your own you're missing out on a huge part of the equation. So yes, I think changing, inspiring, transforming the traveler's mind is a massive, massive part of the equation. Yeah, so Court, you're also a photographer. So where did photography come along in your life? When did you get inspired by that and incorporate that into what you're doing? I bought my first camera just before that big transformational Belize trip. And it was, you know, state of the art of the time. It was one of the earlier digital cameras. I think it was three megapixels, which was massive. Um, you know, now like <laughs> the disposable phone you get from like the candy vending machine has a better camera now, but no, so it was a huge deal for me and I, I, I loved it. I cherished it. You know, I was in grad school No, I was an undergrad at the time. And so, you know, a few hundred bucks is like big deal. So 
I took it with me to Belize. Um, like I said, you know, that first week was a bit of an adjustment. Like, okay, I'm on my own. I'm in a rainforest. I'm in a jungle. I'm sort of camping in these barracks and dorms. And I've, I've just got to entertain myself for a week. And so I took to photography. I, I started taking macro photographs of leafcutter ants and flowers and waterfalls. And I was like, geez, these look pretty good. Now, they weren't, but you know, like to me, they were. Um, yeah. And you know, of course, I, I I loved them. I came back and I, I I printed some off and I framed them. And I loved the idea of taking the photographs. I loved the idea um, of being immersed in the scene and, and preserving its memory, preserving that memory. I loved the idea of being able to share it when I got back. Now that was, I guess, social media existed for a hot second back then, but certainly not really photo sharing. <laughs> Actually, maybe I don't know. I have to check on that. But you know, printing it off at Ritz camera down the street and sharing it that way, right. taking it you know to Thanksgiving, be like, hey, look at my hard copy photos. That was a thing. I loved it all. Uh, and it basically, you know, it started there just like a lot of my inspiration, like a lot of my path in life. And, and it grew like I, I worked hard at it. I, I upgraded cameras when the time was right. Um, and I did that several times. And, you know, the digital technology, I, I thank the digital technology for a lot of it. I bet you I wouldn't have been involved as involved, mm -hmm. if at all, if it weren't for the ease, the cost effectiveness and the very dramatic and rapid increase in quality throughout the last couple of decades mm -hmm. in cameras that man, every time I got a new camera, I mean, it was like, holy cow, I can do something that I, I could not do before. Or this picture looks so much better than before. It just, it just stoked my fire continuously and they're still getting better. You know, there's still like every couple of years, there's massive new technology in the market and I can't wait to get my hands on the next camera. It's, <laughs> it's actually probably going to come pretty soon because this mirrorless revolution is doing some darn cool things. I'm still on my, wow. my full frame uh, SLR, but yeah, I mean, so I'm still stoked. I'm still oh, cool. excited. And it's yeah. just, it's just the experience of being out there. Just a lot of time in the field. So kind of bring this home for us. So how do conservation and travel and photography like all come together for you? I don't think they really do. No, I'm kidding. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's like, that's it. That's my life. I mean, well, they, they came together for me, because I'm I'm the single person and entity that kind of brought them all together into my persona, into my work. Um, but I think it's a pretty natural fit, you know. When it comes to photography, you you know, people want to see photos of exotic, far off places. People want to see photos of animals that are difficult to find or are in rare or in number. So the idea of showcasing the beautiful fragility, rarity of our world is just a really natural fit. I think you take that a step further and beyond just showing people, you, you get them a little bit inspired. Photographs are a great way to promote travel, to promote conservation travel. People see a photo of some beautiful waterfall or a polar bear and they say, golly, I want to see that. I mean, cool photo and all, but like, I want to see that. <laughs> I want my, and you know, this is actually a really interesting thing is like everybody now wants their own photo of this stuff. Um, and I don't know exactly what the art world's doing with, you know, being able to to sell these high-end prints continuously. But as these cameras now cost the same as the prints that are being sold, like I'm I'm just personally seeing a lot of people that are wanting to spend that money to get the camera, to pay for the trip, and then go and photograph that lion themselves. And sorry for the, the professional artist photographers out there that are still making a living on it, but but I really do view that as like sort of the next iteration. So, you know. That was a very random tangent to go down. But basically, the idea <laughs> is photographs and photography inspire people to want to get out there, to want to see it, 
to inject and invest their hard-earned money into this tourism engine that goes to support more and more local people. So I think you could probably make a pretty presumptuous but maybe accurate statement to say that the proliferation of great cameras, great ways to share photos, and more and more photographers is helping to Mm-hmm. solidify tourism as the biggest industry and the biggest growing industry. And this idea of nature tourism is taking up a bigger and bigger piece of that pie because we are seeing stuff like never before. I mean, when you go back to the very first planet earth and that scene of the snow leopard gingerly meandering across the cliff, I mean, that caused such a stir to get people to want to go see the big cats of our world. And in all the subsequent episodes of the savannas and the mm-hmm. rivers and the jungles, you know, there's just more ability to showcase this stuff and more ability for people to see it on their own. I think it's very, very all tied together. Speaking of showcasing natural wonders, you photographed the the monarch butterfly migration and you actually have a book out on that one. Is that is that the your only book that you have out right now? For now. For okay. now, yes, <laughs> that is. I mean, I have some, you know, scientific publications, yeah. but yeah, who who even wants to read that stuff? Um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, my my book, my first, but hopefully not my only book, is uh, I think a beautiful little coffee table book on about seventeen years of monarch butterfly migration photography. I have cool. photographed a lot of those little bugs, and I studied them. It was a big part of my dissertation, and I. I have a lot of different photos. I mean, you you think, well, how can you fill 160 pages of a black and orange butterfly? Uh, You'd be surprised when you're talking about 100 million black and orange butterflies and all the different behaviors, whether they're soaring in the sky or nectaring on little flowers or puddling at mountain streams or hanging in massive clusters by the thousands in the OML fir trees. Um, it's, It's an interesting little journey that I've had down there and I hope to have portrayed the journey itself, as well as my learnings and understanding and, and research and all sorts of stuff of the monarch in this, mm-hmm. this little book. And my hope is that it inspires people to do the same, to get down there, to see it, inspires them to know that monarchs are a beautiful thing worth saving. And the more people that know about it, the more people that love it. And I always say you cannot save what you do not love and you cannot love what you do not know. So I'm trying to get you to, to know the monarch butterfly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you heard of like personal accounts from people that have seen your photos that have been inspired by them and then gone and taken the trip themselves? Yeah, quite quite often. My photos end up in a lot of various travel brochures and catalogs and whatnot. So I think that in the, the, the direct way, certainly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I bet, yeah, throughout the years, as I do showcase this on the, the old interwebs and people stumble across them and they say, wow. You can actually do that? I thought that was just like a Discovery Channel thing. I, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it's hard for me to pinpoint You know, one person seeing a certain photo that I've taken and, and never even considered traveling at all or traveling to this area. Usually it's a big reinforcing thing. I'll be guiding one trip um, in the jungles of Borneo, and they'll say, Court, what's next? I'll say ever thought about seeing butterflies and I'll, you know, whip out my <laughs> iPhone or whatever, show them some photos and they'll say, holy cow, that's pretty cool. And of course I rave about it because it's, it's the mm-hmm. thing that people don't know they're going to love the most about life. <laughs> you know, they, mm-hmm. they don't know it yet, but when they get down there, like this is oftentimes people will have just, you know, seen or gone on the most amazing trip to African safari, seen every animal they ever could have hoped for. 
But then they'll go and see, you know, these, these butterflies, millions of them. And they'll say, court, this, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. This, mm-hmm. this is like the coolest single thing I've ever seen. And I, I know that anybody that has any sort of inkling of interest in nature uh, and or photography, but just nature, just an appreciation for the outdoors and, and beautiful stuff will agree. It's, it's, just jaw dropping. I mean, you're, you're talking about the inspiration that, that photography can bring to people to want to go and travel. And as you're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm half listening and half thinking about the, the impact, you know, so what has, a, what has had a greater impact on the evolution and growth, you know, really explosion of the travel industry? Um, is it the technology in the sense of like airplanes and, and trains and, and our ability to, to literally move from one place to another or is it the impact of the technological advances that the cameras and the photography have brought us, which have allowed, and the videography, which have maybe brought more inspiration to us and maybe uh, encouraged us and empowered us and inspired us to go out there and actually take these trips that may have been available to us before? And I'm sure it's some combination of the two. Yeah. So I think it's a little from column A, a little from column B, and a little from column C. I think the third part of this is the increasing dare I say, rarity of the natural world, of the wild world. Um, I do think people realize that polar bears need to be seen now, you know? And I could go off in a whole different discussion about, you know, how there's probably going to be some, a few remaining populations in the high Canadian subarctic and et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, people have this idea that, you know, it's now or never to see some of this stuff. I hope that's not the case. I hope by their travels, they're truly transforming that prediction but I think the the rarity of the world is that third column that but I totally agree with you. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that it's the technology, the transportation, it's the technology to be inspired, and then it's kind of this urgency. All right. <clears throat> we're gonna we're gonna move into wrapping this up here, Court. But I've got a I've got one last question before we sort of get into some more some more quick hitters here. Thinking back over your lifetime of traveling, what have you learned about yourself? What, what have you learned about the world? What have you learned about life? And you've got about 30 minutes. Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Learn about life and love and the pursuit of happiness and travel. I mean, I think we're all searching for some sort of degree in our lives of novelty, authenticity, and exclusivity. And um, that last one, when I say exclusivity, I don't mean like luxury and fine, fine stuff. I mean, uh, exclusivity, like you're able to do something that not all of other people have seen or done or heard or whatever. Um, Then there's also community too. I think that people also, they love the novelty. They love the exclusivity, but then they also want to share that with the world, of course. So I think that there's Mm -hmm. just these underlying motivations that kind of govern all of us. And it governs the people that don't travel. It governs the people that are armchair travelers or have no interest in traveling. It's, it governs their choices of where they live, how they play, what they do, how they interact with their family. But I think that it's all very similar. It just depends on how we get our kicks. And I think different people may need different balances of those, those things. Authenticity, I say, because I think, you know, there's, there's varying levels of how we're seeking that, but yeah, that, that wasn't the most succinct answer, but I think what governs <laughs> us and our interests and our passions might be very similar, but we do it in a lot of different ways. And this is not just me seeing fellow travelers, mm-hmm. but it is seeing 
others' lives. I mean, there's so many people sure. that I visit and interact and talk with on these expeditions, uh, you know, local folks, whether they're city dwellers, whether they're tribesmen, and, you know, they don't really have an interest in travel necessarily. They're, and you say, well, gosh, you live in this beautiful place. Don't you want to just go over that way to that country over there? There's like all this cool stuff. They're like, oh, I'm very, very content here. Look, look what I have. You know, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That was, no, I, I love that. I think it's like what's striking me as you're saying that is that we, you know, when we travel, we are able to recognize and celebrate the differences, right? But also uh, understand the similarities between people, cultures, and and communities, right? And and then also at a more macro level, begin to see how all of this is integrated and interconnected, and how what we do impacts others all all the time and all over the world. Yeah, I think that's, as I think about it more and as I hear you talk, Michael, that's a big life lesson that I've learned is how interconnected we are and how how codependent we are, and increasingly so. Whether whether we actually are more dependent on the world community or we just are able to know that we're more dependent because of technology, communication, et cetera, et cetera, we're all in this together. You know, So I think that when people talk about conservation and, and you might get point of views that say, well, you know, what can I do or... Or do I really need to worry about saving, you know, some village, you know, in the equator of South America or in the jungles of Borneo? It's like, well, we're kind of, we're all in this together. And the, the more I see these places, the more, of course, I fall in love with them. And the more I want to save these individuals that I've met and these communities and, and the wildlife and all. But the more I just want to save humankind, really. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. when, when it boils down to conservation, it's like, let's save ourselves. You know, like I'm, people often think mm-hmm. that we're all a bunch of, you know, hippies that we're like, save the rainforest, man. Like it's green. It's beautiful. It's like, no, it's like, those are the lungs of the earth. Like that's what allows us to breathe. I really enjoy breathing. I take a lot of deep breaths. Um, <laughs> you should too, try it, you know? Um, and we've got to, we, we know more than ever. And I think we need to use this knowledge to understand how to save ourselves because we, yeah, we may make a number of things go extinct before us, but we're making ourselves go extinct if, if you want to really get down to it. And the world is going to be just fine in, in a million years. It really will be with, with or without us. Well, ho- hopefully with us, but like, let's just say, you know, if we scourge ourselves from the, the world. The, the earth's going to rebound in a magnificent fashion. Rainforest regenerates almost pure primary productivity, meaning like to the same level that they were before anything was cut down in like a couple hundred years, like 300 years and they're, they're tip top shape. So we can save this. Uh, we just need to act now. We need to do something pretty serious about it. We need to change our lifestyle. And I think that by having this perspective through travel, not just the benefits that travel provides, but just the perspective of travel and how the rest of the world can live on a bit less. I think that's super duper powerful. Love that court. All right. Before we let you go, we have a few final questions. We'll keep them relatively short, relatively succinct. What's your favorite book of all time besides your own book and why? Oh, favorite book of all time. I, I might say, Oh, geez, I know this is a quick answer. Um, I'm, I'm going to say the most recent book I read, which is is called Factfulness, um, and it's it's pretty powerful. It's a great way to think and understand the present world. And, and the subtitle is 10 Reasons Why the World is Better Than You Think. So it's a big dose of mm. optimism. It's a big worldview perspective, a big bird's eye view perspective. And I think everybody should read it. I think it should be assigned reading for all the world. 
What's the best or most memorable meal you've had while traveling? Ooh, um, most memorable I'll say is probably, um, like moth caterpillars in either Mexico or Botswana. I mean, how can you forget that? That's a pretty notable thing. Best meal. You know, I gotta say when I went to India for the first time a few years ago, I mean, I like Indian food, but I, I don't eat it like daily or weekly. When you're there, you're eating it like three meals a day for weeks and it, like one of the, you could just pick any meal from there. I mean, whether, I mean, a lot of the vegetarian meals were incredible. Um, I would say pick any meal from India in an authentic real deal Indian restaurant. And that's like one of my favorite meals I've ever eaten, you know, get the chewy mm. naan and all this sort of stuff. Oh, it's yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. What did you think of the, the moths and the caterpillars? Well, you know, they're a little bit like mushrooms in that they just taste like whatever you season them with. So they're just like garlicky and salty, nice. <laughs> a little bit squishy, <laughs> a little bit crunchy. But yeah, they're just like, you know, protein snack, garlic braised moth caterpillar. Yeah. <laughs> Michael looks <laughs> like he wants to try. Well, you know, I, I, I have a particular aversion to mushrooms as it is. So that analogy <laughs> was not. An awesome one for me there. Right, 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 right. Um, all right. One thing you always bring with you when you travel. Ooh. Either earphones or earplugs. I mean, if you can't sleep <laughs> while traveling, you are you are done, especially for big international flights. I I sleep like a baby on them amazingly, and I, I owe it to noise canceling headphones and or earplugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I probably should say camera, but you know, I assumed you were going to say camera, but you can't, but, you can't take good photos if you don't sleep, though. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Um, if you could go anywhere in the world right now, where would you go? Oh, man, it's like going to be two degrees tomorrow in Boulder. I'm thinking of uh, a little beach just just north of Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I know a little <laughs> cantina. It's got the freshest lime juice. <laughs> Maybe, maybe a little margarita. <laughs> yeah, tropical beach in Mexico at this moment in time. Nice. And then uh, then after that, maybe the dead of the Arctic for some Northern Lights photography. Mm. I got to warm up first. Right. Fall <laughs> out before yeah. you freeze again. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, while you travel a lot, of course, in a non-COVID world, you're probably home more often than you are on the road. So what I'm curious about is what are some of the self-care habits that you practice on a, on a regular basis at home that allow you to continue to live this mindful and purposeful life? I got to say, that is one thing that is greatly improved in the significantly less travel world, like the no travel world. I mean, seriously, like I'm, I'm kind of like working out every day. I'm eating super healthy foods. I'm just like in my kitchen on my lunch break, you know, and, and I'm making my own stuff, you know, all the healthy lentils and just, just great, great stuff inspired by my trip to India, of course. You know, I am getting more into meditation. I need to do more of it. Like I need to just sit down and do it, but I'm loving it. Every time I do it, I don't know why I don't, don't do it more. I'm taking uh, more walks with my dog. It's fantastic. Um, but really I'm trying to, yeah, just be as active as I can in my home or in my backyard and eating really darn well. Um, yeah, I've taken a really, so I love to cook. Um, and I've taken a really strong interest in like nutrition and, um, mm. just great cookbook I have called blue zones right now. And if you know of Dan Butner's blue Ooh. zones, yeah, yeah, sure, of, sure, sure. happiness of longevity, we've got a great cookbook. It's all just like really healthy vegetarian food and 
just trying to do as much of that as possible. And it's making me feel pretty darn good. Well, what is one piece of advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Or another way to phrase this or think about this is what is something that you would like to go back if you could and tell your self 20 years ago? Oh, those might be two totally different things, but let's, let's see. I mean, the, the piece of advice I have, um, I'll be talking to those interested in sustainability and conservation and travel is, you know, you definitely don't have to, you know, bite off more than you can chew when it comes to this, just because you're only recycling doesn't mean you're, you're not progressive enough. Just do little things, add to it, be conscious about conservation and sustainability, ask questions, be inquisitive, you know, be, be the, the guy or the girl that brings the reusable spork to, you know, the little cantina or little to go restaurant or whatever. We're not doing a whole lot of that here anyway, but, but yeah, you know, be, be that change. I think, um, if you want to really next level it, like just put yourself out there as I'll say like the weirdo, but it's, you shouldn't be the weirdo, but be the, be the person that is different that asks, mm-hmm. you know, without no straw please, or tries mm-hmm. to bring their own mug to the coffee shop, um, that sort of stuff. And just get that idea in people's minds. What I would say to myself 20 years ago um, is maybe pack lighter. I always bring a lot of stuff on my trips. No. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. You know, just keep keep on trucking, you know, nose <laughs> the grindstone when you need it. Um, you know, do the travel, do the trips. You know, I was talking about earlier in this, is that it's almost a little bit nice that I I have this downtime because sometimes when you're traveling so much, you can't quite process all that you've done and seen and learned from a certain expedition. However, I will say I feel really lucky that I've been able to travel to so many places to so many times in the last couple of decades. Um, And I know I have more, but like it's, it's given me a lot of experience and I do have that worldview that makes me very thankful for what I have, thankful for uh, what I can bring to this world and what I can do to uh, improve it and get everybody be a little more conscious and, and happier with their own roles in life. Thanks, Court. So where where can people find you? What is your website, email? Sure. So it's just my name.com. I, yeah, you know, I, I, I had to buy it from all the other Court Waylands out there, but fortunately it was an easy donation <laughs> to acquire. Courtwayland.com. Um, I'm pretty active on the old Instagram. So court underscore Waylon. Um, and court, spell, spell your last name for, oh, for the listeners. Yeah, it's w H E L A N. Yeah. It's the Irish call the Whelans, but I don't know someone that came over. We, we call it the Waylands, but yeah, whatever tomato, tomato. Uh, but it is spelled W H E L A N contrary to maybe how it sounds. Uh, and then yeah, court underscore Waylon. Um, I also have a podcast called the wild photographer where I do tips and advice for nature and travel and landscape and wildlife photography, starting to get into to some interviews myself. Um, so you can find that on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, just the wild photographer. And then yeah, you're, you're always welcome to get in touch with me in any of those ways. And I look forward to talking more about conservation, travel, photography, philosophy, oceanography, macroeconomics, you know, whatever you want. <laughs> what, re- remind me, what's the name of your book again and where can people find that? Yeah, it is thank you. Uh, The Monarch Migration, A Journey Through the Monarch Butterfly's Winter Home. And that is on Amazon. Awesome. 
Court, thank you, man. It's always good to talk to you. Um, hopefully we get to do it again soon. Thanks again to all of you for listening. Be sure to follow us on social media at GoExplorerX if you want to send us a note to say hello. Hello at Explorer-X.com. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay adventurous. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.